Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is the Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dr Katani. First up, let's take a look at some of this week's biggest science breakthroughs and cancers that put themselves right. Kat, what's this all about? Yes, self-healing isn't a word that people usually associate with cancer, but researchers who've been studying a very unusual and rare form of skin cancer that can clear up by itself have learnt some lessons that could actually lead to new treatments for the disease in future. So what actually is this self-healing cancer? Well, it's a very rare hereditary cancer called multiple self-healing squamous epithelioma, or MSSE for short, and it only affects a handful of people every year here in the UK, and most of them can actually trace their ancestry back to a single family from the west of Scotland. Now, the disease causes these large, flat tumours on the skin, which suddenly just start healing up of their own accord and go away, and they leave scars, but they don't leave any other lasting effects. Now, because of the way this disease is inherited scientists know that it must be one gene that's responsible and now they finally found which gene it is and this is work done by an international team of researchers led by Cancer Research UK's Dr David Goody in Dundee and they've published their findings in the journal Nature Genetics this week but in fact it turns out that as well as relating to this very rare cancer it could actually be related to much more common types of cancer as well. So what have they actually found? Well, the scientists took DNA samples from about 60 people with this rare cancer and compared them with DNA from more than 100 of their relatives who didn't have the cancer. And they focused in particular on a region of DNA that previously they thought had the gene in it and eventually they found that the faulty gene is called TGF-BR1. Now, this rather catchily named gene encodes a receptor, a kind of receiver protein that receives signals from a protein called TGF-beta. Now, this tells cells to divide or to stop dividing, and the researchers were able to prove that carrying a faulty version of this receptor that doesn't work causes people to develop these self-healing tumours. But also, faults in this kind of signalling have actually been found in many other types of cancer as well. Interesting, but why did the tumours actually heal themselves up? Is that the same gene at play? Well, this signalling, this TGF-beta signalling, is very interesting because it's kind of both a goodie and a baddie. So in most cancers, um, TGF-beta signalling tells cells to stop dividing in the early stages of cancer and it kind of puts the brakes on cancer. But after a while, it changes to the dark side and these signals tell cells to divide. But in the case of this rare cancer, this MSSE, the opposite seems to be happening. So the signalling is telling the cells to start growing really crazily and then makes them stop and go back into reverse. Do we know why? Well, this is the thing. So this receptor they found here is just one of many receptors that can actually send, uh, receive these signals, these TGF-beta signals, and that they think that the pattern of signals must be changing as the tumours grow and then heal themselves, allowing the good side of the signalling to come to the fore. Now, although this cancer is very rare and unusual, it could shed light on more common cancers because we know that TGF-beta signalling is involved in many types of cancer. So if we can understand maybe exactly what's happening to the pattern of signals in these cancers and then see if we can maybe manipulate that in more common cancers, perhaps there could be uh, relevance for a much wider range of cancers and potentially new treatments in the future. Sounds promising. Thank you, Kat. Well, one other thing that leads to enormous numbers of deaths and also morbidity, ill health in most Western countries, is heart disease. 
about one person in every three will die directly as a result of a heart problem. And the prevailing wisdom is that when you injure an adult human heart, or in fact any adult mammalian heart, then it doesn't put itself right. It in fact forms a fibrous scar and doesn't replace the muscle tissue that's been damaged. But this is interesting because if you look at other less complicated species, and I'm thinking things like fish, then their hearts have an uncanny ability to regenerate. Scientists in the last year or so have demonstrated that you can cut away nearly a fifth of the ventricle, the main chamber of a fish's heart, and it can regrow it, and there'll be no scarring, and the heart recovers normally. So what Enzo Perello and his colleagues, they're based at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, uh, and they've written up in the journal Science this week, what they've found is that what actually happens in fish can also happen in mammals if you get to them early enough. In other words, they were interested in finding out at what stage we end up with this situation where our hearts can't put themselves right. So they took mice that were one day old and they did an excision where they cut away 15% of the tip of the heart's main pumping chamber. And they then watched what happens to these mice. And initially a blood clot forms and then the heart completely repairs itself. And after 21 days, you cannot see that this procedure has ever been carried out. The hearts function normally, all the muscles are back, and the heart pumps normally. And when they did labelling studies by putting chemical tracers into the mice, they could see that the mouse cardiomyocytes, the heart cells themselves, the muscle cells, were actually dividing in these animals and producing new heart cells to make up for those which had been cut away. When they repeated the experiment, though, in animals that were seven days old, just slightly older, then they behaved like the adults, and their hearts did not repair themselves, the cells did not re uh, respond by dividing to make good the damage. So this strongly suggests that some funny switch occurs between the time of birth and puts us into an adult state by one week of life in a mammal. If we can find out what that switch is it suggests that we could find a way to make hearts repair themselves in the same way as they do in fish. And that means instead of having to try to fiddle around with stem cells coming from outside the body or other bits of the body, we could persuade, by perhaps injecting some kind of drug, the heart that's been injured to put itself right. Really good stuff there. That's fantastic news. Now, from moving from hearts to bones, because also in the news this week, scientists have been using old bones to develop new treatments for chronic back pain. Now, 80% of us will suffer from a bad back at some time in our lives, but the condition is hard to treat because the causes of it are so varied. But now researchers have come up with a new way of testing out new treatments with a little help from our ancestors, as Jane Reck has been finding out. The data that we need, we can derive from these older bones. So although the bones are old, what we end up with in the model is the simulation of a, a living spine. I, as an anthropologist, am providing access to data and providing access to analytical techniques which are going back into biomechanical engineering. The unlikely combination of old human bones and the latest computer modelling techniques are being used to develop new ways of treating chronic back pain. Spines from around 40 skeletons housed in various museums and anatomy collections are being analysed in the research, which is taking place at the universities of Leeds and Bristol. The computer modelling side of the work is led by Dr Ruth Wilcox at Leeds. 
We're using computer models, the same kinds of modelling processes as we'd use in aeronautical engineering or in civil engineering to analyse structures, but using those types of principles to model the spine and to simulate how a treatment would work within the spine. Ruth says they're carrying out the work using latest imaging techniques. Microcomputer tomography scanning is imaging a specimen in three dimensions. So it's similar to the type of technique that we have in a hospital called a CAT scan. In the hospital, a patient is imaged by basically being x-rayed from different angles and then using that to build up a 3D image of the patient's. This works in the same kind of way, but we're doing it at a much higher resolution so that we can see the individual strands or struts of bone within the vertebra. And that data we then put into our computer models so that our computer model simulates this variation in bone across an individual vertebra, but also from one patient to another. The bone remains are being gathered and scanned at the University of Bristol's Department of Archaeology and Anthropology by Dr Kate Robson-Brown. Kate explains why they're using such old human remains. Most of the time, at the moment, we get material from the more elderly sections of the population. And in order to understand the range of variation within a normal population, we need to have information from younger adult age groups. By using older collections of dry bone, and these are macerated, which means cleaned, dry skeletons from those collections, it allows us to investigate bone morphology in age groups which are not accessible using recently donated material. One of the skeletons we're looking at is that of an adult female. She was quite little. (laughs) She was around five foot two when she died. She was probably in her late 20s or early 30s. We have her complete skeleton. This was a skeleton that made its way into, into the collection, we think, in the 1930s. And this particular individual has a very clean, dry skeleton, so there's no evidence of osteoarthritis, there's no evidence of bone cancer, anything like that. We can't tell from her skeleton what she died of, but it was certainly nothing that is represented on the bones itself. Ruth says the new computer software will speed up the process of clinical trials for testing out new treatments for chronic back pain. The idea by the end of this project is that we'll have these models up and running. A company could come in with their design for a new product and and we could simulate how it would work across this population of of different spines. So we could reduce the risk when it does go into clinic and and prove beforehand that in, in our computer models that it's behaving as it should. And the good thing about the computer models is that we can use them over and over again so we could test lots of different products on the on the same computer model. Whereas if we were doing this in a laboratory then we'd need a new spine, a new donated spine each time we wanted to test a new treatment out. Kate says the work could lead to tailor-made medical treatments and even provide new insight into how our ancestors evolved. It would surely be great if we could be in a position where surgical interventions could be assessed for us as an individual against a model of our own bones. We're moving in that direction, but research like this is helping to provide the baseline data on which those developments can be made.
One of the really exciting developments that's arising out of this for me as a biological anthropologist is being able to apply this type of modelling technique to fossil bones for which there is no other way of testing them. So, for example, we could take a fossil skeleton that's three million years old, scan a vertebra, make a model of it, and actually test some locomotory strategies to see whether that individual in life walked around on two feet or four feet. And that's a major development for evolutionary anthropology. The research is funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. The computer modelling software is the first of its kind for back conditions. It should be available for testing out newly developed products and treatments in the next few years. Well, that's making me want to uh, sit up straighter just listening to that. That was Jane Reck from the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. And we've got some video of that on YouTube with some of the images from that report. You can find it at nakedscientist.com slash news. Now, another thing that's a very important health problem is skin cancer. In fact, the rates of melanoma, one of the most aggressive forms of skin cancer, have gone up 100% in young people in the last 10 years or so. And diagnosing it is not always easy. Usually a mole or a pigmented lesion looks a bit strange to somebody and they take it to a doctor and a dermatologist will usually make a diagnosis clinically by looking at it. But 85% of the time these things can be missed and if you do take a biopsy, a piece of the tissue away and give it to a pathologist, a recent study showed that actually 14% of the time pathologists end up disagreeing about some of the samples they receive as to whether they are a bad lesion or a safe lesion. In other words, nothing really wrong. And the problem is that doctors don't like to make mistakes when it could cost someone their life, and therefore they tend to be cautious in how they manage these kinds of things, and therefore, as a result, we tend to subscribe to the medical mantra of, if in doubt, cut it out. And as a result, people often are over-treated in order to make sure that something doesn't get missed. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a better way of scanning these lesions so that we could find out who is more at risk than others? Well, that could be about to happen because there's a very nice paper by a researcher at Duke University, Thomas Matthews and his colleagues. They've got a paper in the journal Science Translational Medicine this week and they've used a very clever optical technique to address this question. It's called pump probing and what they do, and in this case they've done it using 42 biopsy specimens, but they say this could be applied on the body. You wouldn't need to take even a piece of tissue away from a person. You take the sample of tissue, they zap it with a laser at a certain colour or wavelength of light and then a very tiny amount of time later they zap it again with a different laser light of a slightly different wavelength and what happens is that the first burst of light bleaches out the background coloration of the tissue and the second pulse of light then activates and excites eumelanin. Eumelanin is one of the colours of skin pigments in the skin and it turns out that eumelanin is more commonly present in cancers than the other type of melanin called pheomelanin which is a more yellow colour and the kind of melanin you get in things like freckles. So if you look at cancers you tend to find that they contain more of this eumelanin than the pheomelanin and this pump probe technique with the laser light can disclose and quantify exactly how much of this eumelanin is there which means that pathologists and dermatologists can potentially make a much more accurate appraisal of the likelihood that a lesion is going to be malignant. 
Now, they tested this out, as I say, on 42 biopsy specimens, and the technique correctly identified the samples that were in there that were real melanomas compared with the samples that were not. So the researchers say that, yes, this will work beautifully down a microscope, but the real good news is that you could also make a sort of probe that would mean you could fire the lasers because they're not being... Uh, run at a harmful energy into the skin and do the same technique in vivo, therefore no re- no reason to do harm to the patient, no need to do an invasive test. Cap. That's really fantastic news. I know that there's some skin scanning techniques out there for kind of trying to look at melanomas because the thing about melanoma is that if you can get it before it's spread, then that's it. You just take it out and it's fine. But as soon as it's spread, it's really difficult to treat successfully. So something like this, this could be really great if we can work out what is a melanoma, particularly for people who are very moly and freckly, where you have a lot and you want to know what's if anything's gone dodgy. And equally, you don't want to over-treat people by giving surgery or even more invasive surgery to people who turn out actually not to need it either. Exactly. If you want to read up on anything we've covered in the news this week, we've got the references and the transcripts for all of our news stories online at thenakedscientist.com slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.